Welcome to the American Valor Podcast, a section of the Act of Valor Award Foundation. The foundation is the unique intersection of Major League Baseball, the United States Navy, and Marine Corps, representing the 37 Baseball Hall of Famers who served in World War II, led by Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller. The foundation's mission is to educate the younger generation about the honor, courage, and commitment of the greatest generation. Our goal is to help our country become a little stronger. My name is Nathaniel Cameron from Ohio University. My name is Tyler Buckholtz from James Madison University. And my name is Colin Kirk, also from James Madison University. We are interns for the Act of Valor Award Foundation, recognizing and honoring those Americans who support our service men and women by means of the Bob Feller story to educate the youth of today on the lessons of citizenship, service to one's country, sacrifice in times of great national need and legacy. Our goal is to tell the story of American valor no matter when or where it has happened. We will bring Americans timeless true stories of valor to life through conversations with individuals who have acted with courage. We will search for stories of American valor and bring these stories to you, stories you want to hear. We are excited for our conversation today with retired Major League veteran, Mr. Brad Ziegler. Mr. Ziegler played 11 seasons in Major League Baseball for the Oakland Athletics, Arizona Diamondbacks, Boston Red Sox, and Miami Marlins. And he was the Bob Feller Active Valor Award nominee in 2016, nominated for his support of servicemen and women. Brad, thank you for taking your time to join us today on the American Valor Podcast. If you will, tell us a little bit about your uh, story uh, when you started playing baseball and what led you to Missouri State. As a start. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, first of all. And um, you know, it it's uh, supporting the military is something that's always um, been very important to me. And I, um, w- once I got into the big leagues, that's when I kind of felt like I actually have the the avenue uh, to go in and um, actually do something about it. So um, I, you know, I, I started playing baseball. I was five, seven years old. Um, a lot of it was just playing with my dad across the, you know, across the street from our uh, the, the trailer we lived in when I was growing up and, and it, it just, um, you know, we, we, I, no matter what I wanted to do, whether it was baseball, basketball, you know, working hard in school, whatever, whatever I chose, the only thing that my parents ever told me was work hard at it, you know, whatever you're going to do, work hard at it. And so they didn't want me signing up and then kind of being one of the kids that, that didn't practice between, you know, between games or, or whatever. So we were out playing almost every single day and I've loved baseball since I was a kid. And, um, it, it just worked out where, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to play, uh, on, on some select teams in high school and a really good Legion American Legion team for a, a really good coach. And, um, I, I got noticed out of there had, had a couple opportunities to play in college and ended up selecting Missouri state, just had a great fit with the coaches. I, I liked it. Uh, Springfield was it was a couple hours, two and a half hours away from my house, so I was far enough away to kind of get the college experience, but also close enough where I could go home any weekend I wanted to. And um, you know, fortunately, was was uh, drafted out of out of college uh, by the Phillies and and got cut my first spring training. Uh, played <laughs> played some independent ball for a little bit, and then signed with Oakland out of there, and, and was able to work my way up in 2008. You had a long career in, in the minors. You got called up when you were 28 years old. What drove you to stay with it? Because I know a lot of people get discouraged when they're down in the minors for a while. 
Yeah, and I, I was a fifth-year senior coming out of college, so I was a 23-year-old draft pick, which is part of the reason why the Phillies, you know, they drafted me. But basically, if I didn't go and light the world on fire, I wasn't going to stick there because I was I was pretty old for a guy in, in A-ball at that time. Uh, the A's didn't care about that. They they basically only cared about whether you perform on the mound. And and I guess one of the reasons I stuck around was because I I kept having success. Like, I, I had a good season in A-ball. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of the, the, the my first – full season of minor league ball was 2004. I had a, uh, took a line drive off the side of the head and had a skull fracture. So, um, they, they sent me back to the same level in 2005, just to, um, just to make, kind of make sure number one, I was okay getting back on the mound mentally, but number two, uh, I I was good enough physically because I didn't get to have my normal off season that off season because of it. So, um, I, I, but I, at the end of 05, I went up to double a, um, started 2006 in double a made it to triple a, um, it was after that that uh, kind of at the end of that season that they asked me about converting to be a submariner, moving to the bullpen. Um, they they basically told me they felt mentally I was ready to pitch in the big leagues, um, but but I just didn't have anything physically that separated me from a lot of other right-handed hitters in the in the minor leagues. So they felt like this was a way to potentially do that. Um, so they sent me back to Double A to start 2007, uh, about a month and a half into the season. I uh, was able to to get promoted to AAA, had a good season the rest of the year there, and then and then started 2008 in AAA and made it to the big leagues. So uh, I guess it was just the fact that I kept advancing. I kept it. W- it wasn't like I got stagnant at any one level where I was like, man, I don't know if I can get past this level. I was able to have success and and keep it going, and it just kind of keep keep that dream alive in the back of my head. What was making that change to submarine like from going from overhand down to sub? It was tough. I at first I was not. I was I was a little apprehensive to the idea because I had had success being an overhand pitcher. So I didn't see the need to make that change yet. And they basically said, look, we think you might be able to get to the big leagues as an overhand guy. Um, we, we think you are a lot more likely to get there as a submariner and also a lot more likely to stick once you get there and, and not be a guy who bounces back and forth between the big leagues and the minors. And, and these were, you know, people who are paid to professionally evaluate players. And I didn't want to, eventually I kind of got to the point where I didn't want to let my stubbornness get in the way of, of an opportunity that they saw in me that, that wasn't just cause it wasn't something I wanted to do myself. And um, so I, I spent, I went down to Arizona in, in October of uh, 2006. Um, I worked for a whole month, uh, basically getting one-on-one instruction from the A's pitching coordinator, Ron Romanic. And the the first two weeks, other than just playing overhand catch, just keeping my arm strength up, when I was actually throwing submarine, I was never throwing a baseball. It was just repeating the delivery over and over and over again. And then finally, I got to the point where he was like, all right, let's let's get a catcher um, and, and see what happens. And and then I ended up getting a uh, getting to face a few hitters at the end of that month um, in instructional league, just, you know, basically 18, 19 year old high school kids that had, had been drafted the year before and. Um, we're down there just getting some extra work in at the end of the season. And, um, you know, it, I was having some success. I was getting the ball on the ground, but the velocity was not what they wanted. And and at that time I was, I was literally releasing the ball down by my ankle. It was, it was really low. Um, so they, at the end of spring training in 2007, they said, look, let's, let's stand you up a little more, try releasing the ball, maybe at around knee height and just kind of see what happens. And, and that's when everything kind of took off. When you got the call up uh, in 2008 to the A's, you came out hot. You uh, tied the A's record for consecutive scoreless innings at any point, and you finished the year with a 1.06 ERA. 
Uh, what did it feel like to have such a great start to your career? Uh, looking back on it now, I, I can kind of realize how special that time was. At the time, I literally felt like I was pitching just to not go back to the minors. And, and <laughs> they had when they called me up, there were three relief pitchers on the disabled list. Um, it was it was something where um, I was like, look, I, I realized the odds of me sticking at this point are probably not great, but I'm going to at least try to make the, the decision difficult for them. And, you know, as, as these guys kept getting healthy, I, I was not giving up runs and um, it, it just, you know, worked out where I was able to end up sticking. And, and once September 1st arrived, that was kind of my first real indication like okay even though i had, i had been moved into the closest role in mid-august and and was still pitching well but it, when september hit i was like okay the minor league season's about to end they're not going to send me down now i i might be able to kind of just relax a little bit and kind of take this all in as opposed to to just being so rigidly focused on on going out and trying to have success that i i wasn't able to enjoy a lot of it prior to that so um i i enjoyed september was able to to um, play for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic in 2009, and um, that was kind of when I first really felt like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm an established big leaguer. Um, even though I, I still had a lot to learn and a long way to go, I was playing on a team with Derek Jeter and David Wright and Chipper Jones and, uh, you know, R Roy Oswald and um, just a lot of guys that I had admired um, as I was, you know, growing up and coming up through the minors, and all of a sudden I was on the same field with them. Uh, it was just, just uh, you know, kind of a surreal experience, and and they they did a good job of kind of making me feel like I belonged, even though I was the kind of the newbie there. And what's that like playing with all those guys who you're used to competing against, but now you're all playing under the Team USA? That was one of the funnest experiences of my entire big league career because that was literally the only time until I got in the playoffs in 2011, the only time where you didn't feel like there was any politics any guys vying for a certain spot on the team it was all about winning and I hadn't felt that in the minor leagues it's extremely competitive it's cutthroat there are guys openly rooting against their teammates because they want to get the call up instead of them uh, it's it's very it's challenging because it's not what you envision it being you think you're just going out and and playing baseball and trying to win games and and it's not that way especially off the field and um, you, there are very few friendships that, that I developed in the minor leagues or even, even in the big leagues on the, the teams that I played with that I would consider still friendships. Now it's, it's still very competitive. Uh, you know, you might be in the bullpen and, and it's like, okay, well, there's a closer and there's a setup man, maybe a seventh inning guy. And those seventh inning and eighth inning guys are always vying for, to try to be the closer. They want to be pitching well in case that guy falters. And yeah, part of that is winning games. Like if you're, if you're pitching well, you want that to happen. But I saw guys in the big leagues where they, you know, they were the seventh inning guy and they wanted to be the eighth or ninth inning guy. And so they would go out and have success. And then at that point, they almost kind of hoped that the closer would, would blow the save and, and end up kind of going on a bad string where maybe they would get a shot to close. And I just never understood that. It was so frustrating. And, and that team USA time was, was really special because of that. There were guys who Adam Dunn is the one that, um, specifically comes to mind. He was playing for the Washington Nationals at the time. They were a last place team year after year in that era. And he was looking at it like, this is the, the playoff experience for me. This is as close to the playoffs as I'm going to get for the next couple of years because our team is terrible. And and so they were really trying to soak it up and enjoy that competitive atmosphere. And um, we just had a blast doing it. It was a lot of fun. So you just mentioned the competitiveness between people in the bullpen even. 
how was it for you going from being a closer to be coming a setup man and then later on going back to the closer role and kind of just flip-flopping did that affect you at all or were you just uh, there I, pitch? yeah i'd like to i'd like to think that it didn't affect me some i mean your mentality is a little different when you get to the ninth inning because the other team at that point is we got to do whatever we can to extend the game whether it's you know even if it's pinch hitting a backup catcher for a center fielder if it gives us a better matchup, we're going to do it, and we'll figure out our defense later. And you don't have that in the seventh inning. In the seventh inning, you kind of – you know, there's maybe some pinch hitting, uh, but it's not to the same level as it is when you get to the ninth. And so I, I tried to just go out there and get outs no matter what the situation was because I really just wanted to try to help the team win. And and I was never designed – you know, when, they, when I say designed, they didn't design me when they switched my delivery. They didn't design me to be a closer. They thought I was going to be primarily a guy coming in with runners on base, trying to get ground balls to to get double plays to get out of innings and get out of a jam. And it, it, I always kind of felt like it's not necessarily the best scenario for the team if I'm the closer because whoever was the closer has has either gotten hurt or faltered in that role. And um, I, I just kind of looked at it like um, I, I, my job is to go out and get outs. It doesn't matter what inning it is. I've got to figure out a way to get outs. And if I get outs, that will help the team win. And, and that was my primary goal. So uh, I didn't mind the, the role switching as long as, the, you know, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, especially toward the end of my career, have some managers who were great communicators that, that were very open with me about this is your role. This is when we're going to look to use you. Because the older I got and it, was, it became harder on my body, I was able to, you know, not have to worry about being ready in the, the fourth or fifth inning. Like they told me, like, look, we're not going to use you before the seventh. Um, and, and it could be the ninth, that kind of thing where, you know, or when I was closing, I knew I basically had the ninth. I had a lot better idea when I needed to start stretching, you know, how loose I needed to get at a certain point in the game so that if the phone rang and they told me to get up and go, you've got the on deck hitter. I could, I would be able to get ready, uh, in the time span of one batter in the game, uh, to be, to be ready to go. And, and it's a lot tougher for younger guys when you're called up and you don't really have a, a defined role you need to be ready in the second inning if you're if your starting pitcher sucks that night or or gets hurt or whatever or and you also need to be ready in the the sixth or seventh inning in case you know the a situation rises where they want you or all of a sudden your team gets blown out and and it's like you know what you're going to go in and, and pitch a couple innings to try to eat up some innings and get us through the end of this game where we don't have to use our big guns who's your favorite manager to play for Oh, favorite manager. Um, I, I enjoyed playing for Don Magley quite a bit in Miami. Um, I enjoyed playing for Kirk Gibson a lot in Arizona. But I would say my favorite was probably Tori Lavallo. And even though he was only the manager the last last three months of, of my career, he was also the bench coach in Boston the three months that I spent there. And we developed a great relationship in that three months that I was there. And not knowing that, you know, I was going to end up playing for him again down the road. It was just there was just a connection there that I I felt like he respected me as a player. I respected him, you know, for, for what he did as a player and also what he's done as a coach. And and when you walk in there, there were players in that locker room who respected Tory immensely and they talked about it openly with other players. And it it led it lended me, you know, when when Pedroia is saying this and David Ortiz is saying this and David Price is saying this, like guys who are, are established stars in the big leagues, you you kind of get the feeling like, okay, this guy may have something. I want to get to know this guy a little bit and and whenever I did, it was everything was genuine. He was fantastic. He was a great communicator. 
uh, definitely the best communicator I played for in the big leagues. And, um, and we still, to this day, um, have a good relationship and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, he, you know, when I told him I was retiring after the season, you know, his, his first response was, you know, congratulations. I, you know, I'm happy for you. I hope it, it's everything you want it to be, but can I ask you why, you know, you were really good for us at the end of last year and, and we had some, some strong interest in bringing you back. And, and I just told him like, you know, it's, it's, it's as hard on my body right now. Um, as it's ever been. And, and I'm, you know, I have some concern for my quality of life down the road. If I try to eke out another season or two in, in this and um, I, it's, it's just, it's, it's really difficult for me to get on the field every day and, and be at the level that I want to be at. And, and I, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm past the point where I can put in that, that effort and be out there every day and, and especially pitching basically every other night, like I was um, last season. Yeah, and I and Joe Thomas, uh, left tackle for the Browns, he retired saying the same thing. Um, you know, the the uh, stress on his body, he couldn't do it for another season. How hard is that to come to that conclusion after you've been living your dream, and how hard was it to for you to make that decision? Uh, for for me, it wasn't tough because I had come to the conclusion, maybe even prior to the 2018 season, that like this is going to be my last one. Like I could feel it. I I dealt with. I, I never spent a single day on the disabled list my entire career um, until 2017, my 10th season in the big leagues. And it was so frustrating. I, I dealt with a back injury in spring training and it basically lingered all the way through the end of June when I finally was having, I mean, I was having trouble breathing um, because taking a deep breath because my, the, the muscles in my um, back that were pulled were, were pulling on ribs and um, it was, it was just a, a challenge just to kind of play with my kids even. And, and so I finally told them like, look, I, I've tried to gut through this. I can't do this anymore. I need some time to, to get it right. And I came back and pitched pretty well after that, but it was, it was a struggle um, mentally to, to not be able to go out on the field. And, and I just thought, you know what, if I keep pushing my body to, to the limits that I have, it's, this is going to happen more and more and more. And the, the mental anxiety and, and frustration was more than I wanted to deal with. And, and the physical pain was um, at, at times uh, pretty difficult too. So I, I, going into 2018, I was, I knew I was ready. I was just going to go and enjoy um, every city that I got to go play in, in 2018 for the last time, just know that like, there's a chance I may never come back to this city. There's a chance that this is my last time in these ballparks and, and playing in front of this, these particular group of fans, I'm going to try to enjoy every single minute because you never know when it's going to get taken away. And, um, in, in some ways, I, I played kind of that way my whole career, but it was in a, in a whole new light in 2018. And um, when the season was over, I was just at that point, I, I just kind of knew I was ready to be done. <clears throat> Were you asking for any APs in your final season? <laughs> no, um, swinging a bat. I, I did get to, to put a helmet on and, and grab a bat one time in 2018. It was basically going to be a decoy. They didn't even put me out on deck because they really wanted me to they they didn't want another team to think that um, they might pinch hit for me. So I put put the gear on, stood down in the dugout. But they like bottom line, I was going to go hit and and they were trying to make it look like they were going to pinch hit for me just to get the batter in, in front of me pitched to and, and not intentionally walk to, to get me to the plate. So um, they left me in the dugout and, and put a pinch hitter out on deck. And then, uh, you know, the eight number eight hitter. Uh, maybe the last out of the inning, and so I ended up not having to hit. But um, I got to hit a few a few times early in my career. Grabbed a base hit, and I think that was maybe in 2012. So uh, I was able to to at least have have that moment. Keep get the ball, get the bat from from the, the experience, <laughs> and 
um, you know, put it in my trophy case. You, you remember what pitcher was off of? Oh, yeah, Jeff Samarja. I, can, <laughs> I think I could probably – I had seven at-bats in my career, and I might be able to list all seven pitchers that I faced uh, if I thought about it a little bit because, you know, not all of them were – were big name guys. I know I had a strikeout against Mike Fires. Um, the my first big league at bat was um, oh I I could I'd have to look up the guy's name because it wasn't a, a common it was a, a Latino pitcher wasn't a common name um, and and uh, it was um, it was a name I'd have to just to make sure it, it's it's S. Merrill Rogers or something al- along those lines and. Um, he he broke my bat. I hit a little tapper back to him and splintered my bat. So I was able to keep the the bat from my first at bat too, just because it was in pieces. <laughs> you pitched ten seasons in the major leagues without going on the disabled list in an era where pitchers are very frequently injured, and you actually pitched more games than anyone else in the major leagues during your career. So I'm just wondering, what do you think led to that durability? Was it your your pitching style, or was it something else? No, I I don't think it was my pitching style because if anything, I feel like pitching the way that I did was um, was was potentially harder on my body than it might have been, uh, you know, if, if I had remained an overhand pitcher. And it's funny because you 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 people have this this conception of that because fast pitch softball pitchers can pitch basically every game. They can go out and throw every day. Well, that their motion is a lot different than what I did. They're standing upright. Their arm is swinging right past their, their hip and their thigh. And that's basically the same motion you use with your arm when you walk. And yeah, they're spinning it over their head, but it's a lot different stress on, on their body. I mean, they're spinning it over their head at like 50, 60 miles an hour. Whereas we're, when you're throwing an overhand fastball at, at 90 plus, that's how fast your arm is going. It's that's a lot more stress and, and uh, you know, stress and, and uh, just stress on your arm and on your body in general. But then when you essentially take the same motion and just say, why don't you bend at a 45 degree angle at the waist while you're doing that? My arm was was still in the same position in relation to, you know, my hand, relation to my elbow, to relation to my shoulder. I was just bending at the waist. And so at the same time as I, I was putting the same stress on my arm. I was also putting stress on my hips, my knee, my back. I had to have microfracture surgery on my left knee at the end of the 2014 season, um, basically because of the wear and tear of my delivery on my body. And and so I was doing treatment on my knee nonstop from the, the middle of, of the off season in 20, 2014 all the way through the end of my career. I still have to do therapy on my knee even now that my career is over. And it's I, I think it was actually – more difficult on my body at the same time. Like, I think I was kind of blessed with some genetics to be able to, to stay healthy. Um, the, the one thing I did that a lot of guys don't do is I I'm not muscle strapped. Like I was a tall, lanky, um, lean kind of guy. I didn't want to add a lot of muscle to my upper half. And so, um, I, I think that's the biggest reason for the, the volume of injuries that you see in today's game um, especially with all the, the muscle and joint stuff is, is muscles are just bigger and, and putting more stress on the joints than they ever have before. You know, you look back into the, into the eighties, you watch games in the eighties and most players are pretty skinny and, and, you know, relative to today's game where, you know, the, the seven hitter on a team is, is a lot of times six, two, two twenty, And, and it's just, it just wasn't that way before. And guys were able to be durable longer 
that was the way my, my body type was. And, and I didn't want to try to change my body type. I did try to add some strength to my legs throughout my career uh, for some endurance throughout the season. Uh, but I was never a, a guy that, you know, I wasn't a hard thrower. I wasn't going to increase my velocity, you know, over the time in my big league career. And you see guys trying to do that sometimes and it ends up just putting too much stress on their body. And um, they, you know, they end up on the, you know, the injured list now. And, and pitchers who don't get injured, especially relief pitchers who could go out and throw that large quantity, uh, they're pretty they're pretty desired. Uh, you got traded for a couple of times. When you got traded, do you ever look at what you got traded for and think, man, they got a good deal for me? Or, man, what are they trading me for? Like, <laughs> uh, at times, I haven't really followed up. I know, um, you, know you, you hear some names or, or whatever, but... Um, at the same time, like I understand, like it wasn't just about getting the players back. Sometimes it was, it was a, you know, a lot of it was monetary when you're trading relief pitcher away, you're not doing it because you think the guy's not good. Like Arizona thought I was a good player when they traded me to Boston, but they also were able to, I was in the last year of my contract. They didn't feel like they could resign me with what I was going to go for on the open market. They, they were able to save some money in the second half of the season off my salary that year. And, you know, get a couple of guys back that, that they liked. And, and so it's more, there's more to it than just the players they got back. Um, at the same time, like I, I always, I never played for a team where I kind of wished, you know, I, I left with bad blood and wished ill will on them when I left. Um, I, I felt like I was, um, you know, I, I left on good terms. And so I always wanted them to have success. I, I hoped from that standpoint that the, the players they got worked out and it just, um, you know, wh- whether it has or not, I honestly couldn't tell you, um, you know, when I got traded back to Arizona in, in the middle of last season, it was a lot of different scenario because they were taking uh, one, one double a pitcher. And basically Arizona was just wanting to dump my money, get, get rid of paying my salary the rest of the year. Um, and Arizona was willing to take it on. And so, um, it, it's, it's possible that that guy ends up being a, a good big leaguer. And, and for Miami's sake, I, I hope that happens. I had a good relationship with Mike Hill, the, the team president and GM there and, and with Jeter, the the owner and um, with Don Mattingly, the, the manager and the rest of the coaching staff, I had, you know, I had, I wish um, nothing but success for them going forward. And so we'll just have to, you know, have to see how, um, how it ends up working out for them in that deal. In 2016, uh, you were the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award nominee. Um, what did it mean to you to find out that you're nominated for the award? Um, you know, I, I had been nominated uh, previous year and and it was really cool for me just to be nominated. And when I got the letter that I'd actually won the award, I was I was blown away. Like, number one, you see the list of people who had won it prior to me there, you know, with, with the, they have the Hall of Fame winners, the George Brest, the Rod Carews and, um, you know, so on. And then and then the current players are Justin Verlander and Jonathan Lucroy and guys that I've seen some of the work they've done for the military it was really cool to, to, to be put kind of into that category because I didn't ever do it for recognition. We've done a lot of stuff um, behind the scenes that's never even been public because we do a lot of stuff with Navy SEALs and, and they're very, um, they're very particular about what can be public and what can't be. And um, I never had a problem with that because I, I never wanted to do it for recognition or notoriety. That was not what I was, I was never trying to win any awards or, or, you know, in a sense kind of toot my own horn, um, so, so with that being the case, when I, you know, my Twitter account is not filled with a lot of stuff about the foundation at the same time, we want to, you know, continue this stuff going. And, and so I let my, my agent and the, and the, the Twitter account for the foundation do a lot of, of the promoting of it. And, 
Um, that was just never wanted to be my thing because I really just didn't want to to bombard people with, hey, look what I'm doing. Hey, look what I'm doing. Um, it, it just meant more to me to get it done, not worry about the, the, the accolades that, that might come with it or the, or the recognition that might come with it. Um, it's more important to me to to make sure that the, the troops and their families are getting what they need. And you mentioned that baseball gave you a platform to help military men and women and their families. And then you went and founded Pastime for Patriots. Tell us a little bit about that decision and the process beginning the foundation and how it's impacted the lives of the men and women who serve. Sure. So we in 2000, um, that was in 2010, uh, when I first kind of felt like, okay, I've, I'm in a position to do something. Um, the Oakland A's had a ticket program through their through the A's Foundation um, that if you purchase a ticket and they they made the tickets cheap, like a dollar fifty a piece, or they, I guess they were three dollars a piece. But what, however many tickets you bought, the A's Foundation would match it. So it worked out to where it's basically a dollar fifty a piece, and you could put it toward any organization you wanted to. And there were you know players who chose the Boys and Girls Club and and players who had had done first responders and. Um, you know, ho- homeless shelters or, or a, even like a, a abuse recovery shelters, that kind of thing. No one had done anything for the military. And while those were all great causes, I wanted to try to find something different. And since military was my passion, I, I uh, was able to, to find some, some military bases in the area who could use the tickets. We passed them out. And, and the more I got to meet these families and talk to them, the more I realized this is something that there are, there's a greater need for this than I realized. And they, these families are, are, you know, constantly concerned for their loved ones who are serving overseas. Um, and, and so that was where we put the focus. It was on the families at home, um, making sure that they didn't feel forgotten. There are a lot of people who do a lot of great things for the troops, but a lot of times the families were kind of left in the background. And so that was where we put our focus, getting them out to baseball games um, all year and, and trying to, um, you know, give them a night out. Baseball games can be expensive, especially for a family of four. Uh, a lot of military families, you know, don't don't have a a, a great deal of income. Um, so to to buy four tickets, to buy parking, to buy uh, concession stands, uh, food at concession stands, and you know, maybe even a souvenir, it can get really expensive quick. Um, and, and so we wanted to alleviate at least some of that cost. And so we tried to do tickets and parking when we could. Uh, depending on the ballparks. And and there were organizations who were fantastic to work with. The A's were always great. Even after I left the A's, when I was in Arizona, the A's still let me purchase tickets in the Bay Area for their, the military families there. Um, the San Francisco Gi- Giants were fantastic, even though I never played for them. Um, we would do stuff. I worked out where I played in, in San Francisco on Memorial Day, two two seasons out of the, the time I was in Arizona. And they, you know, let me do stuff for Memorial Day games. And it, and it was really neat because that's a game that already has a high attendance level. People aren't working that day. Um, they go to baseball games, day games, you know, on a, on a Monday or whatever. And um, it, it was already a high attendance level. And they still blocked off a certain number of tickets for me at, at a discounted rate to make sure that the military families got in. Uh, Arizona was great when I was there. Um, I, it's you know, the other places I went, I, I, I did some stuff in Miami. Um, there's a, a special ops organization down there that I worked with um, that that they were um, they came in once a month. Um, it was a smaller group than we had done in the other ballparks. But that was just it wasn't because the the, you know, of the desire. It was more just that's what they had available at the time uh, because their you know, their schedules fluctuate. They can be called out on on a day's notice a lot of times when. 
um, that that's not typically the case for for regular enlisted uh, enlisted uh, military personnel. So um, they, you know, they we it was it was kind of like, hey, we've got some tickets for Friday's game. Let me know on Thursday night how many you need, and we'll see who's who's able to come on Friday. And so we still tried to continue it everywhere we went, and and it's evolved into so much more. We started supporting uh, military baby showers for. Um, you know, it, a, a couple of them, uh, and this was fantastic. A couple of them were actually, uh, women who were, um, in, in the military themselves, uh, the pri- primary, you know, re- recipients, I guess, for the baby shower were, uh, wives whose husbands were overseas and, and they, you know, they're at home essentially getting ready to have a baby or having just had a baby. Uh, we worked with a company called Operation Shower, organization called Operation Shower that, um, has access to all all this information. They they were able to bring in the the 32 kind of the the women who were in the kind of the most the situation of the most need, the most want, you know, financially with their you know what the situation for their spouse was, and we, they were able to have this big baby shower, give them all kinds of gifts and and gift cards and all kinds of stuff to let them go get what they need, and, and it's just been you know fantastic. We also partnered with. Uh, Oliver North Foundation. Um, it's called the Freedom Alliance Fund. They give scholarships to uh, high school seniors who've had a parent killed in service, and and that's not information I had access to, um, obviously, but but their organization did, and so we wanted to partner with them and and help fund some of these scholarships to um, to make sure that these kids who have lost a parent what in their in their youth um, are not hindered in their development and and opportunity to go to college and. Um, it's, it's just been awesome to, to, to meet these families. I, I still stay in touch with a few of them and, um, I, I just admire them greatly. That's awesome. Thank you for all you've done to support our servicemen and women. Thank you for taking your time to join us today. Uh, we know you got to go, but we appreciate your support for the foundation. It's, it's totally my pleasure. And, and I appreciate you reaching out and, and thanks for having me on and, and, you know, definitely wish you all in the foundation the best. For our listeners, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Active Valor Foundation and the 37 Hall of Famers who served in World War II, please visit our website at www.activevalorward.org.